Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and as Formula One wakes up after its August break, we ask who needs to do better in the upcoming triple header at Spa, Zandvoort and Monza, and what might follow, both in terms of the on-track action and what the increasingly amorphous calendar will look like. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to tackle those key questions and more are Scott Mitchell and Claire Cottingham. Well, Claire, we'll say hello to you first as our as our special guest. You're F1 journalist, broadcaster, commentator, presenter. Basically, you do everything, so... The main thing is I don't want you to show me up as a as an amateur presenter on this. <laughs> um, no, well, that you, I would have had to have redone that about three times. So you did it first go. So no, absolutely no. Thank you for having me. It's um, it's really exciting to be here. Yeah, it's good to get some uh, some special guests on every now and again. We haven't done it too much, but we're hoping to do it a little bit more often. And our second not so special guest is Scott Mitchell, who's normally lying around the place. He's enjoyed a few days off during the break. How are you, Scott? I'm fine. I, I I take umbrage at what you've just said there, though. I do many things on this podcast, but I've never recorded one horizontally. So I'm always <laughs> I'm always upright and ready for action. Um, I'm never I'm never phoning in a podcast. You can you can accuse me of many things, Ed, but I do not I, I do not come to these uh, podcasts half baked. I'm sure I can remember you after one race recording one in a slightly reclining position. Probably having worked solidly for thirty hours. Yeah, I was slightly, re- <laughs> slight, I slightly reclined is. Uh, it's not horizontal, is it? I might have recorded many a podcast at an obtuse angle, but never, uh, never, never fully reclined, never fully horizontal. Excellent. Well, that's that's the important topics we've uh, we've chosen to hit. Anyone saying we're <laughs> scraping the barrel during the uh, the August break is uh, entirely wrong. So let's get on with probably the one big thing that has happened, Scott. And before we start piling the pressure on the underperformers this year. The cancellation of the Japanese Grand Prix, second consecutive year it's gone, fourth race to be cancelled, that list also includes China, Singapore and Canada, Australia's on the postponed list and probably looking unlikely to return this year, so should we be surprised to have lost Japan? Um, with, with hindsight, definitely not. I think I think there was a period where it did look like it was possible and I think everyone was pinning their hopes, all the stakeholders were pinning their hopes on the Olympics being being the the justification for pulling the race off. So I'm not surprised in the sense that this is a country that COVID cases have been rising and there have been all manner of difficulties with, pe- uh, with allowing people into the country. And obviously F1's got people from all sorts of nationalities going to different countries beforehand as well. So it's not like the same quarantine requirements could be satisfied 
for a Grand Prix. So there were always question marks, but there was always this little bit of hope that the Olympics could basically be the saviour of the Grand Prix and be like, oh, well, you know, if we can, if Japan can hold this huge sporting event, um, F1 would be able to as uh, as well because it's something on a much smaller scale. You could do things with a, a sort of biosphere-like setup like they had in Abu Dhabi last year. Not the most fun experience for those attending, but enough to, to make the race happen. But yeah, probably when, when we see how other events have fallen off the calendar, probably can't really be all that surprised. It's just, for me, it's just a massive shame because the Japanese fans are among the absolute most devoted and enthusiastic and it's a race I love going to so selfishly the you know losing the opportunity to go to Japan is is a massive shame but just really thinking I think you've seen a few races this year where they have allowed fans and when I've watched like football in England and and stuff like this you see just the the um, enthusiasm that fans have returned to sport live sport with and you see the difference it has made to people who have got a Grand Prix to go to, having missed out last year, because pretty much everybody missed out last year with the exception of, uh, of a really small number. The chance to come back and have that, that Grand Prix, is, it's just nice. We're all trying to get back to a degree of normality and have something to look forward to. And the Japanese fans would have been looking forward to that for ages. And obviously being Honda's last race before they withdraw, Yuki Tsunoda's on the grid as well they had so much to be excited about so i am just i don't normally like have a like personal vested interest in a race getting called off it's kind of like oh that's a shame get over it but japan is the losing japan is one that i do have an an, an enormous amount of empathy for it, it's just it's just something that sort of sucks all around really it's quite a weird situation because after this next three races and then russia it's a little bit uncertain exactly what we're doing there's a turkish grand prix obviously schedule and we know we'll go to Bahrain etc but it is strange isn't it Claire that we know we're going to have a fairly busy end to the season they're still aiming for 23 races but we don't know exactly where we're going to be and there's all sorts of question marks over various races. So at the beginning of a season I love to do I love to write the calendar out like and for me it's the most I really enjoy it like I like doing it with like a nice pen and just having everything and if there's a mistake it really annoys me it really annoys me this year I've got so many scribbles on my calendar it's causing me so much stress and it's true we come off the back of of the break and we sort of know where we're going great okay hopefully we know where we're going as far as we know everything's been ticked off and then we get this odd little break where nobody knows what's going on and and you know it's not just the fact that we know we won't know where we're going but it's also the fact that that teams and drivers won't know what circuit they're going to next certain circuits suit certain drivers certain circuits suit certain teams so the fact is that we have even less knowledge of what's going to happen at the end of of the season and who might take the championship which is exciting but also you know, it does always remind us in the back of our, our mind what, what we've gone through in the last couple of years just to make sure that this could happen. Um, and the global pandemic is still going on. Um, it's interesting, Scott, what you were saying about uh, Japan. I, I fly tomorrow for the Paralympics and the paperwork and everything that we've gone through to to make sure that we're out there. And when we're out there, I'm I'm basically in a hotel for 14 days apart from going out to work it's completely, we saw in the Olympics, it completely has taken away the sort of shine that Japan has and having the fans, that the very enthusiastic fans involved. It, even if we did go, would it be the same? It, would, it wouldn't It would be the same because 
there's so many Australia's back in lockdown, you know, it's not over. And it's just, it's interesting to think Japan would even be anything but a question mark. And I guess then we look at Mexico, we look at Brazil and we think, will they happen? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm doubtful at this point. Yeah, one, one of the things that you mentioned there, Claire, which is interesting to pick up on is the uncertainty over the rest of the calendar does have actual tangible impacts it's not even just the uncertainty for the for the drivers and the teams about where they're going it's how they plan out the final part of the season because um we we've got we've got things like engine allowances that have uh, um, the, the number of races on the calendar have a huge impact on and the number of races left has a huge impact on how these how the teams pick their strategies um we know that in all likelihood Max Verstappen, Sergio Perez and Charles Leclerc are all going to have grid penalties at some point and ideally as a team you want to take those penalties strategically you want to do it so that you take the penalty at a race where you can offset the damage pretty easily and then have the good engine the fresh engine for the next race where it's going to make the biggest impact one of the things that Honda did in the past for example was take the grid penalty in Russia because it's not a strong track for them then Verstappen can get back, finish fourth, damage limitation is there you go. That that's fine. But then they've got the fresh engine for Suzuka, their home race. They've lost their home race now. I know that they've they're like they're, the teams will have all manner of contingency plans. They'll have probably plans A through Z because of how <laughs> many different crazy scenarios there are to finish the season. But when you've got question marks over, are we going to have two races at Austin? Are we going to have no races at Austin? Are we going to go to the higher altitude races? Uh, are we going to have races at circuits we've never been to before, like Qatar? Uh, factoring these in to all of the decision-making, whether it's logistical things, whether it's um, strategic things like grid penalties, and whether it's basic setup preparation and simulator work, it's an enormous amount of... Uh, it's an enormous amount of confusion. And also, we've got an incredible and an amazingly tight title fight where the number of races we have and the circuits we go to is going to have a huge impact on who wins the title and, and whether you can claw back a deficit or something. So I, it's going to be one of those championships where it won't have a, an asterisk against it in the sense that um, whoever wins could or whoever loses can say, yeah, they won. But if we'd have had the normal season, I would have won. But it's just that it's got that asterisk against it as it's just mad. I thought last year was I thought last year was uh, was sensational and it was obviously unique in its own way. But this season is so strange to go from effectively a completely normal first half of the year to just having these huge question marks. It's just last year was unprecedented and this is still unprecedented. So <laughs> it's just uh, it's just such a weird situation to be in. Yeah, well, at the moment we've kind of got an idea. As you mentioned, Qatar could have a Sakir Grand Prix on the uh, on the so-called Oval Outer Circuits. Mugello and Nurburgring, I guess, are hanging around. It'd probably be logical after Turkey to have a, a race straight after, maybe in Europe, because Turkey's got a problem for UK. Obviously, UK based, most of the teams are because uh, it's a red list country. So if you come back, you have to have ten days shut up in a quarantine hotel, which is uh, which is not ideal. But other countries are on the red list as well, including Mexico and, and Brazil. So it's uh, it's it's pretty complicated stuff. So particularly with the fact it's such a quick fire run of races to finish the season, it's uh, it's it's a slight challenge to um, certainly to book your travel. Put it that uh, put it that way. It's also really interesting to to sort of look at the fact that Formula One seemed to be so obsessed with this twenty three 
races that they want this season. And it was incredibly ambitious coming into the season in in just the the state of how the world is looking at the moment. But just for the fact that they seem to be so intent on it. And I don't really understand why. And I don't know whether it's a sort of pride thing that they've said it now and they've made such a noise about it or whether it's just that the fact that they want to prove that they are the best at what they do and they can and they can you know throw the best party i guess <laughs> within motorsport but it it seems to be an interesting thing that they are they are trying to stay with and trying to make sure it happens and we've got gaps in the calendar already now heading into the second se- second part of the season so it would be interesting to see how many races we have come the end of it probably 25 they'll probably add a few more well, races equals money. I think that's probably the uh, the equation they're working to. But it, it is interesting because although there's a few European circuits, Nürburgring and Mugello both held races last year, so I guess theoretically are available. But in terms of, of time away, theoretically, if there's a, a US race, there could be a situation where basically you have to have the F1 teams almost on the road for two months uh, without without going back. And for some, that's fine. But for others with family commitments, et cetera, that's, that, is, uh, that is quite difficult. But at the same time, it's fortunate to be able to operate in these times of COVID. So I guess we should be thankful that there's, uh, there's stuff going on. Well, Claire, let's look ahead to the second half of the season. To set the stage, I'm going to ask everyone to pick out who or what needs to do better in the second half of the season and why. So, Claire, who would you like to put the pressure on first? So it's such a funny one, isn't it? Because there's quite a few people, <laughs> there's quite a few teams and there's quite a few drivers um, and and trying to think about it and, and pinpoint exactly one person or one driver or one thing is incredibly hard. You could say Bottas, obviously a very, um, a very popular opinion, I would say, that needs to be doing better than Lewis. Um, you could say silly things like, Aston Martin, or Danny Ricciardo, obviously, but you could say things like Pirelli need to do better next season, the rest of the season rather, to make sure their tyres don't have blowouts. There's all sorts of things. I will say though, and I I sort of kick myself a little bit for saying this, but I will probably say Sergio Perez because he he's not quite doing the job that I think maybe... Red Bull hoped when he came in, you know, he had what 190 odd starts, I think it was 191 starts coming in. He was one of the most um, experienced drivers that Red Bull have ever taken a punt on because usually they go for for one of their academy drivers, so to speak. And he's not really doing much better than Albon last year. If you look at the numbers, obviously he's got to win. Um, in strange circumstances in in Baku. But Saturday seems to be a real struggle for him and he doesn't seem to be able to hook up that Red Bull to be able to be up there fighting with 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 Mercedes and, and and Max really. So he sort of compromises his own race by Saturday's being a struggle. And then having to work out to get through the Ferraris and the Lando Norris. And by the time he's got through that within a race, sort of Max and, and Lewis have run away with it. So I would say Perez is 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 one that is going to be looked at quite closely to the end of the season. We know that Red Bull are quite cutthroat with their drivers as well. Helmut Marco's already come out and said, mm, we're not sure we're particularly happy. Whereas Christian Horn has come out and said, no, no, we're happy. Everyone's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. Everyone's having a great time. So it will be interesting to see because he needs to do basically what Bottas is in 2019, which is be there next to 
his teammates, supporting his teammate, and importantly, trying to break up those Mercedes and trying to make sure that all the points they can gain, even just for the constructors, is done. Whereas I don't think Perez is doing that at the moment. And it seems harsh because it's his first year and I I feel mean saying it. But if you're going to look at it like that, I would probably have to say Perez. Yeah, the trend's strange for Perez because he, he started to get there and then slipped back a little bit. The last The last few races, obviously Silverstone, struggled in qualifying and then had that off in the qualifying race, which ruined his weekend. And then Hungary... He was a reasonable chunk off Verstappen. Nothing he could have done about the first corner. But yeah, it is piling the pressure on Scott. Do you you expect Perez to stay on next year? It looks like they're going to have to do that because anyone's going to have trouble up against uh, Verstappen. And we know Perez isn't going to be the strongest qualifier, but it's fair to say he needs to be a bit stronger than he has been. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I would my my first pick for this this section would would have been Perez as well because he's the guy who is underperforming the most relative to his machinery. Um, and it's a shame because you touched on it, Ed, that he seemed to be getting on top of it. There was a little run of races. Obviously, it peaked in Azerbaijan with the win. Um, I know he inherited that win, but he was second on the road on merit. Um, he was putting together, it was his best weekend so far. And then in, in France, he sort of qualified well enough, still too slow relative to Max, but qualified enough to keep him in the picture and then did a very Sergio Perez job in the race, uh, Did a, put himself in a strong position strategically to do something different and earned himself a podium on merit. So he just had this little run, which was actually quite a good place to be so early on in the, the Red Bull career that looked like it was making a new contract a bit of a no-brainer. Um, I think he's now gone into the to to the break with a slightly weaker hand obviously Hungary's really unfortunate because he was a um he was a victim of the Valtteri Bottas bowling ball uh <laughs> so um and and there was a little bit of uh there was quite a bit of confidence in sort of hit within him and Red Bull that actually depending on track position he could have had a, a, a quite a strong run to third or fourth in that race and again then the picture looks a bit different um I think he's got two or three races now after the summer break where he does need to um he does need to put something very good together. Uh because otherwise even if he does get a contract for next year it's just going to it's just going to mean that there's a, a very short fuse at the start of 2022. So everything he's doing is now is all about career longevity at, at Red Bull. I don't think it's quite at the at the at the position of he has a few races to save his drive entirely, which is where Albon was, obviously, in the latter part of last season. But he's not he's not as far from that as I think he should be. So it'd be interesting to see how he how he manages how he manages that. So I would completely agree with Perez being sort of the he's the poster boy for who needs to do a better job in the second half of this season. It's a funny thing that second season, uh, that second seat at Red Bull, isn't it? It's it's such a poison chalice for anybody that comes in. And I remember looking at the the sort of past of that second seat alongside Verstappen, who who was promoted, obviously very very young into the seat, and and um, left Toro Rosso when he was what just eighteen. Um, and I remember kind of looking at at the the pattern of what we've seen since Max has been in that seat, and it's. And it's such an interesting thing because it's never quite drivers really un- underperforming, but it's almost drivers that perform okay and then almost get spooked a little bit and then start underperforming again. Like we saw with Gasly, you know, he he came out very um, 
well, very candidly and spoke about it, didn't he? And said how he felt that he made a mistake and suddenly the team weren't with him anymore and, and he felt they turned against him. And and it's that sort of thing of if is it is it the dynamic within the team that is that is spooking good drivers, or is it the fact that that Max is just he's just too good and he is he is the number one driver there? Yeah, I think probably at heart it does come down to the fact that it's always incredibly difficult when you're up against someone like Verstappen. And I guess the point you made there about the driver kind of closes in and then regresses again, it's almost like they kind of need to just sit on what they've got and accept, okay, if I'm qualifying a quarter of a second off, that's fine. Just have to accept you're not going to get closer. And and I think Perez should have the mentality to do that, given what he's done in the past. But it's, yeah, it's it's really, really challenging. And as Valtteri Bottas will tell you, being up against an all-time great is uh, is no easy matter scott would you like to pick out someone who uh who needs to do better claire did list just about everyone um <laughs> already so uh so basically absolutely everyone needs to do better but who would you like to pick out uh well i was thinking i was gonna go with daniel ricardo but it feels a little bit too obvious and i also think that i don't think with daniel there's with the, the the type of problem he's got in that car and, and, and where he is now and how many races have now been completed, I'm not sure there actually is much capacity within what he's struggling with to do better. So I'm not going to pile on him. I'm One thing I am going to pick out on, one, one person I would like to highlight is actually Carlos Sainz. And the reason I'm picking him is because I actually think he has done the best job of anyone who's adapted to a new car. Uh, for, for for this season so I actually think he's had a really good first half of 2021 the reason I'm picking him is because he's now set the bar so high the area that he's falling short which is piecing together a complete weekend and being a bit more consistent is actually holding him back quite a lot and he's ahead of Le- he's ahead of Charles Leclerc in the points he's got two podiums he's got more points finishes than Leclerc everything in black and white tells you that Sainz is having an absolutely mega 2021 but this is a driver who, whose entire career basically has been misled by the black and white points very rarely doing him justice. He's normally a lot better than the results make him look. So I try, I, I sort of view it as I've given him the benefit of the doubt in the past because I don't think the statistics have done him justice. So this year I'm flipping it and I think the statistics are slightly flattering him. I think he's, as I said, He's done a very good job to get to the level he's at, but by his own admission, he needs to be more consistent. He needs to be piecing together these weekends. He has shown in glimpses across practice, final practice, qualifying and the race, he's he's pieced together these fantastic individual sessions. His job now is to put together the sort of weekend that Leclerc had in uh, at Imola or at the Spanish Grand Prix where you qualify really highly and then you just have a brilliant untroubled professional race where you blitz most of the people you're racing against directly um i we haven't quite seen that from signs so far um i think a big part of that is going to be improving his qualifying form uh and it'll be interesting to see whether or not he has the ability to do that because we've seen the last few races that ferrari's qualifying form has dipped slightly and its race performances have have, have improved it's found a slightly better balance i think across the across the two just to sort of strengthen itself on the Sunday so I don't know how much uh, of a step we're going to see visibly from signs but I think it's more about just having like fewer dramas basically from the weekend so you want him to have that good qualifying into into a good race 
Um, I don't think he's under any pressure from the point of view of he needs to justify himself to Ferrari or anything like that. But just looking at it purely objectively from a who needs to improve, he is a Ferrari driver. He's got uh, an impossibly difficult yardstick to measure himself against in Leclerc. But he's done such a, a good job in patches in the first half of this year. I really want to now see him take the next step and show and basically get back to the level he was at at his peak at McLaren, where he was just this invariably brilliant performer, just doing really accomplished, polished performances, weekend in, weekend out. And the more comfortable he gets at Ferrari, the more he should be capable of that. So let's see him do it in the second half of this year. And it's interesting with Ferrari, isn't it? Because we have to remember that they suffered their worst season in 40 years last year. So Carlos coming in and... and almost rebuilding this team. If we look back to 2019, you know, Charles Leclerc coming through and all of us being like, this guy is going to be a world champion. You know, he's he went and won in front of his, you know, Ferrari's home crowd at the Italian Grand Prix. You know, he was he was so exciting. And then we had to endure watching a, a season where Ferrari were just miserable last year. And, and they were, they finished sixth in the Constructors' Championship. You know, they, they had a ho- horrible time. And then this season, you know, it was the new fresh face of Carlos Sainz alongside Charles Leclerc and they're rebuilding a team. So I think this year was always going to be one of those weird stopgap years, especially as we look towards 2022 for the new regulations. So you're right, it would be really good to see him do do better, but I think he's absolutely got the chance to to build something really special with Ferrari. Yeah, I think Science is a good example of someone who's who's done decently, but just because we know he can be so good that you just want to see that last little uh, half step. But I'm sure he'll uh, he'll be very very well aware of that. Uh, I get to choose one now, so I'm going to go with a team and go a bit further down the grid and choose Alfa Romeo. A team we haven't talked about a huge amount, but a team that's got a relatively tidy car. It's not super fast, but it's it's all right. I think in the hands of a team that executed better and potentially with a with a megastar driver, there'd be a few more points finishes. Nothing massive, but I think they could be picking up kind of ninth, tenth places a bit more reliably. It's 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 a strange team because they talked about all the potential they've got when they expanded the uh, the Alfa Romeo deal, and it is a team that's kind of rebuilding. Fred Vasseur keeps calling it a, a young team, even though it's been in Formula 1 since 1993. <laughs> but obviously, they, they really did struggle under the old ownership. But it's been a while now. So I'd like to see more from it. I'd like to see fewer pit stop blunders and general calamities that the team keeps having. Obviously, Kimi Raikkonen being released into Nikita Mazepin in the pit lane in uh, Hungary being the classic example and trying to fit a, a tyre with no air on it on Giovinazzi's car <laughs> earlier in the season. I think it was <laughs> Spain was... Uh, was unfortunate. So that, that's kind of a, a low-profile team that I think could be doing a, a little bit better with a with a fairly nice, uh, nice consistent car. But I, I guess Scott, they're an interesting one because they're a, a team that has got potentially two open seats for next year. So they're they're a they're a key driver market team. So they also could do with tidying things up to attract a, a, a decent quality driver if they if they want to make a, a change. Not to say that what they've got aren't decent quality. Raikkonen's got a great history. Giovinazzi is a is a good quick if erratic driver but they they are looking around yeah i think i think they're struggling uh with the fact that in that battle at the back well mainly with williams so far because they've been they've each been sniping for small points finishes and then obviously williams got that huge haul relatively for a, for for that battle anyway in hungary and i think alfa romeo have been paying the price for not having a george russell in the car because 
I think that Al- the Alpha is a better car than the Williams. It, it's a it's a oversimplifying it, but if you look at how many times that Williams has got into Q2 and even Q3 with Russell, and then you have a look at where the Alfa Romeos usually are, I I can't believe that Alfa Romeo have the points total they have now if they've got Russell in the car. I, I think they've got a, a handful more, even if it's only an, an extra couple of 10th places or an, an eighth or a ninth or something. Um, I'm pretty sure that, that I'm pretty sure that they would be benefiting from that. So it's all about now being a bit more convincing as an all-round package. Um, The limitations that Alfa Romeo have just kind of feel like the same limitations they've had for the last two seasons, really. I just sort of see quite a lot of stagnation with them. Um, So I'm a little bit disappointed, Ed, because I picked someone that was a little bit of a left-field choice for who needs to do a better job in uh, the second half of the year because I picked someone who's actually doing a very good job you've gone a little bit more route one which I feel is a bit out of character you're normally a little bit more hipster with your choices well uh, I could have I could just pick a Max Verstappen or a Lewis Hamilton perhaps but no um <laughs> no I just thought Alpha because we haven't talked about them a huge amount because they often just tend to find ways not to be uh that much of a, of a talking point Hungary's the classic example as you said William's got all those points but Giovinazzi had his pit lane speeding. Raikkonen had his his disaster, which wasn't his fault. It was a uh, a pit stop procedural problem. He was released into the into the pit lane, and that meant that they weren't there to to pick up the points. But I'm sure we could. Well, should, should we have a second round of who needs to do better? And I'll see if I can come up with a slightly more uh, unpredictable choice. I, I've no doubt, Claire, you've got a, a long list of people you want to pile the pressure on. Who else could I pick? Um, I mean, <laughs> starting to get a bit mean now, isn't it? Um, I would probably weirdly go Mercedes as well to add into that uh, little fun gavel of people we put <laughs> into the can do better basically the whole grid but fine um but but Mercedes you know they, oh, I mean it's a hard one isn't it because it's this weird it's this weird gap year that we've got within Formula One where Mercedes have already said you know we're not going to do much to our car because we're going to focus on 2022 Hamilton was out moaning about upgrades but then there was actually an upgrade coming and they're just not, even though I think they've conducted themselves better off off the track than Red Bull have, I feel that on track there's been a few issues. Um, and, and whether that's whether that's just like their underperforming car at the beginning of the season that, that shook them a little bit, I, I don't think that Hamilton's not going to win an eighth title. Don't get me wrong. I think that they are still an incredibly strong team. But there has been a few a few blunders from, from Mercedes and things we haven't usually really seen. They've got Bottas, who, who has had quite a bad start to the season. He's starting to get himself back on track before he became, you know, the, the bowling ball in Hungary. But he was starting to get himself back to a good place. And Hamilton seems a bit rattled in 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 general and of course he's going to be he's got Verstappen on his uh, you know biting his his toes basically that's not the saying is it come up with your own sayings for that one but it but you know it's interesting to see Mercedes are actually being a bit rattled this time around and I don't think we've ever well in seven years we've not seen that from them so yeah let's let's throw them in too seven seven time world champions they could do better I think that's a good choice. I think that's the kind of thing Scott was expecting me to come up with. So you've uh, <laughs> you've outdone me there. But it's it's a it's a valid point. And you know you see the cracks appear when the uh, when the, the the pressure is on. Scott, do you have a, a second pick? 
Well, I, I was actually just going to briefly pick up on the fact that you joked about saying Verstappen or Hamilton, um, but tying in with what Claire was talking about, I think you put Hamilton in the in the list as well because he's the championship leader, sure, but he hasn't had as good a season as Verstappen has. If I reflect on the first half of the year and say, how much can Verstappen and Hamilton respectively do a better job? Um, Verstappen cannot blow his tyre up in Baku. He cannot get in the way of Lando Norris's skittled McLaren in Hungary. I I can't hold those against him. I, I still think that there is an element of if he really wanted to, he could have played it safer at Silverstone. So that's the loss of points where if I'm being really critical of him, I say he's lost points there that he didn't need to lose. Um, but he should still have a massive lead in the championship. Uh, through no, and he's not got that through no fault of his own. Whereas Hamilton is the one who's made the bigger mistakes. You know, he got lucky at Imola when he went off the road and and got saved by the safety car that then became the red flag. Um, he he threw away what was about to be a win in Azerbaijan after after Verstappen had retired. That's a huge swing there, and he had the move at he had the move at Silverstone that um, that yeah ultimately he was deemed to be. Um, predominantly to blame for, so he he was lucky. He was lucky to get away with that in the way that he did. Not not because I think he should have got a bigger penalty or any of this, but because if the race hadn't been red flagged for Verstappen, Hamilton would have retired from that race with the damage that he picked up in the incident. So, so Lewis has been Lewis has been quite lucky in big ways in the first half of the year. And you do need luck to win a championship. There needs to be things that go go your way over the course of the season. It might be that he's had his fortune now and he might come out and do a very sort of vintage Hamilton versus Ferrari thing in the second half of the season and just absolutely blitz it. Um, I think he needs to, to beat Verstappen. I think Verstappen's, uh, I think Verstappen's putting together a brilliant season and I think the Red Bull is a slightly faster car. So I think for Hamilton to win this championship, I think he does need to be better in the second half of the year than than in the first half of the year. Um, so I I I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say well oh, Hamilton's under massive pressure, but I think if you're having an honest conversation about who needs to have a better second half of the year to the first, I, th- I think Lewis is is on the list. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a fair choice and. We're going to see Hamilton and Verstappen tested to the to the limit over the second half of the season, no question. I'll, I'm going to pick one more world champion and go with Sebastian Vettel. Judged by his high points, he's been really good. He's had some fine drives, Monaco, Baku, Hungaring was very good. He was quick at Silverstone, but then at Silverstone we saw, the, we saw the spin on the first lap of the race, which is the downside. He's had a few weekends where he's been not so uh, not so impressive. And I think he's had a reasonable season, certainly. But I just want to see that kind of consistently really strong Vettel because uh, he's such a great character for Formula One and, and such a good person to have doing well because, you know, I've seen with his his litter drives and things like this, he's uh, he's somebody who sees the, the bigger picture in, in Formula One. He often doesn't get the sort of same credits for it as someone like Lewis Hamilton does, obviously, who's doing some great work in terms of using his platform. But so is Vettel in a slightly different way. So I think both on and off track, uh, Vettel's someone you like seeing doing well. And it, for a reasonable amount of the season, it's been a bit nip and tuck with, with Lance Stroll, but he's just starting to show that Vettel might be able to 
really steal a march on him in the second half of the year. So I'd, I wouldn't say Vettel's had a bad first half of the season. He's not had a, a great one, but the, the high points have been good. So I just want to see more of the high points. Just picking up slightly on something you said there about um, Hamilton and the sort of looking at Hamilton and, and looking at, uh, at, at Vettel as that what I find really interesting is Vettel has no social media, whereas Hamilton has built up this huge um, community within his social media as well. And we've seen obviously the rise of, of so many different stars now, thanks to Netflix's Drive to Survive. Suddenly, a load of new drivers have been catapulted into this world that maybe only a handful of drivers on the grid have ever seen before. But there's something about Vettel, isn't there, where I, I couldn't help but feel more than I probably should have when he had the disqualification off the back of Hungary. And you just can't help but warm to him and you want to see him do well. And when he was at Ferrari, it was almost hard to see the way that he wasn't enjoying it and and clearly wasn't really clicking with the team in the way that he wanted to towards the end. And you just want to see him do well. (laughs) I don't know what it is about Sebastian. You just want to see him do well. And when he lost his third place, it just felt like he'd really worked hard to get to a point where he, second place, sorry, where he'd um, got to a point where he, where he'd really turned things around. And then suddenly it was taken away from him. And, and then the championship swings and Hamilton, you know, steps up a couple, uh, you know, up to second place. But yeah, it's interesting. Sebastian's an interesting. I'm talking them like their first name basis here. I'm sorry. Vettel is. I'm not friends with these people. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you're being nice and positive and then uh, you just deny, <laughs> denied knowing them, denied being friends with them. Yeah, yeah, I don't like them. <laughs> if, 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 the rule, if the rule is that we shouldn't be using first names for people we don't know, I'm just going to refer to you as straw for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> I think that's only fair. But I think Mr. Mit- Straw to you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But have a certain level of formality to come in on the uh, on the podcast. But anyway, I think we've picked out enough people who need to do better. Although I think we could probably get through uh, every driver and team uh, given the time. But yeah, that's six six drivers and teams that really need to uh, take a step. Well, Claire, looking ahead to hostilities relaunching at Spa, the battle between Hamilton and Verstappen and Mercedes and Red Bull, it built into a bit of a frenzy, didn't it, before shutdown? You've touched on it uh, already. Do you think that time off will have just calmed things down a bit? Or do you think it's going to be a full-on shooting war again as soon as we get to Spa and they start talking on Thursday? Well, Toto Wolff has already come out and said he's not going to listen to the noise, isn't he? He's already said, actually, I got a bit rattled. Red Bull triggered me and I shouldn't have said the things that I said during the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. That was along the lines of the stuff about the flexi wings and the bendy and and Hamilton accusing Red Bull of having a, a bendy wing, which made them faster, basically. And then there was all the windbag comments and all that that happened. Um which which ramped up the tension. It was one of those things where you look at it and go, thank you for writing headlines for us. However, what's kind of going on behind the scenes here is that is there more to this? And then we got to Silverstone where some of the comments that came out from from various different people I didn't I didn't really agree with and and I and I struggled hearing some of them um because I think it just went a little bit too far over the line. Emotion sort of boiled over to the point of actually maybe people should have taken a step back and thought about what they were saying before they kind of took... Look, I get it. They were angry and and, and various different things were, were said. But I just think that some things, some of the things that were said off the back of the Silverstone collision were maybe just a little bit too... Save it for the debrief, I guess, is, is what I'm saying, rather than air all the dirty laundry out into the media, which 
was great again was great for us we got to see it all and we got to see the tensions boiling over it's one of those things where i go it's sort of reminiscent of like james hunt time you know where where people would say whatever they thought and nobody cared and you'd get a swear word here or there or you know two fingers up to the camera to their to their opposition whereas whereas it's got a bit more tame in the last couple of years for f1 so i'm sort of a bit torn on it as to whether i want to see more because it reminds me of the sort of old school f1 you know what what we had before it became shiny and and uh, heavily commercialized or Look, I think it's going to continue. <laughs> this is the short answer to that. I don't think that they will be able to contain themselves when when it gets to the second half of the season. I think the war of words will continue. It's a long way of saying it, but there you go. No, it's it's a double edged sword, isn't it? Because it's great to see the intensity and that it matters, and that the the cracks appearing shows that that the pressure is really on. It shows how hard being in this situation is, but. I don't know about you, Scott, but I can see them going to Spa and both sides will be thinking, oh, we'll just be calm and sensible. Then just something will happen to set it off again, whether it's at Spa or Zandvoort or Monza, and they'll all be away again. And then they'll start firing shots at each other. And then then they'll do their thing of attempting to blame the media for things. Red Bull seem to be... Uh, yeah, Max Verstappen was talking about media hype, wasn't he? It's kind of what well, it's your team that keeps trying to, re- <laughs> trying to review the Silverstone <laughs> decision and kept uh, saying things. So... Uh, I can kind of see that happening. They won't be able to help themselves, will they? No, I had a dream the other night that Red Bull uh, submitted a petition to review Bottas's <laughs> penalty at the Hungarian Grand Prix. So this is like the the paranoia is buried in my brain now for what for what the, what this has descended into. I think um, I I think Hungary was a great example of the where where we'd got to with the intensity of this row because um by the time we got to saturday evening sunday morning everything from silverstone should have been buried it, it red bull tried to get the penalty reviewed they said some stuff mercedes called them out on some stuff but just in a sort of slightly cryptic way it escalated to what should have been the peak that was the point of de-escalation that was the point where both sides i think started to recognize we we need to do something about this now. The problem is they never got a chance to do that because a few hours later Bottas skittles both Red Bulls at turn one, which just it just it just the wound didn't <laughs> it wasn't the, the wound hadn't healed the wound hadn't even started to heal, but then they just like just opened a new one right next to it. It was it was awful, um, and we saw that post race because. I think Wolf was genuinely like I think he felt genuinely awkward at the end of it. He he spoke a couple of times about like maybe it's karma that Lewis didn't win because I don't really f- know how I'd feel about us getting maximum points from a race where that's happened. Um and we saw as well like he did look genuinely apologetic to 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 Horner post race but he seemed to get the cold shoulder in response and that I think triggered a slightly um a slightly terse reaction from Toto as well. So I think we needed to get into the summer break because I think this had got to a like quite nasty point where I feel like it was um it, it was never going to be reconciled and I I hope that it has now cooled to the point where we can go racing again until there is another flare up and it just be a little bit less ill-tempered and controversial because 
what I don't like is that the division between the two teams is now becoming the de- the defining element of this narrative. Um, for so long, it was about Hamilton versus Verstappen. It was about the fact they were going wheel to wheel. It was about the fact they were going wheel to wheel and they weren't hitting each other. It was about all the right things a title battle should be about. And now, admittedly, obviously Hamilton sending Verstappen into the barriers at high speed at Cops changed that. But it has just been surrounded by all this other off-track stuff. It's turned it into more of a soap opera than a sporting contest. And it's great for business. I'm sure people listening to this think, what are you talking about? This is amazing. Long may this continue. It's just, I personally, I just cringe a little bit when it's happening to the extent it was happening before the summer break. So I don't get me wrong. I don't mind if this is nice and fiery when we start again. But I hope it doesn't get to the point it did in... Uh, over the post post Britain and then a bit of Hungary as well because Red Bull always said it never got personal. Hamilton felt the opposite. I think it did get personal. I don't think it was necessarily. Um, it might not have been necessarily quite as targeted at, at, at Lewis as it came across, but it was very much personal for both teams. And I just think it. I think it kind of spiraled a little bit out of control. So I'd like to see it be. It's you know this is sport. This is the biggest. This is the biggest prize in 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 world motorsport that they're going after. Um, it's not going to be friendly, but it can be respectful. And I feel like at times in the last few weeks, or at least before the summer break, it wasn't very respectful. I remember when we were sitting in the media room at Silverstone and Christian Horner came and spoke on, on Zoom to everybody and we all had our computers up and we were all watching it and we were all ready to to see what he had to say. And and you're right, Scott, it, there was there were just a couple of things that came out from different parts of the camp that just didn't, I didn't, it felt like it had gone tempers over. And I agree, like it should be at the, to the point now where we can go back and we can have some good, clean racing. And I think, it, you know, <laughs> I think it will start to, to boil over once again. Of, of course it will. And you're right, Scott, they didn't have any time to stop and, and think about everything. Um, I think the defining point was also at the beginning of the Hungary weekend where Verstappen actually boiled over within the press conference before we'd even started any, it sort of set the tone. So it was already that he was very angry within the press conference. He was effing and blinding within it. And wasn't apologetic of it and that's fine if he wants you know that's how he wants to chat then absolutely fine but it really did set the tone already that actually Red Bull weren't over this and going into the Hungary weekend we still remember this and then of course Bottas managed to wipe out both Red Bulls with Verstappen still managing to finish the race but Sergio out and it it just again it just set that tone and it was like and you're right it was a wound that never was able to to really to really heal I guess uh, to to carry that that sort of metaphor forward, I guess having the almost cooling off or recovery period, perhaps to be more consistent with the the metaphor of the shutdown, probably will have helped just to take some of that edge off it. I suspect they'll be on slightly less of a hair trigger because you've just felt in hungry. If anyone said or did anything, no matter how innocuous, it could just blow everything up again. But uh, hopefully, it'll have moved a little bit back from that. But when you get these championship battles that last the whole year. The pressure does build. It does get so high intensity and people build paranoia. And I think that this does happen. And if this goes all the way to Abu Dhabi, which I think everyone will be hoping it does, it's impossible to see there not being another flashpoint of, of some sort. So at that point, people won't be able to uh, to contain themselves. So something to certainly look forward to the battle on track. Off track, it gets uh, sometimes a little bit repetitive, doesn't it? 
Just a quick one on that as well. Uh, what I find really interesting is, is, Scott, what you said about it feeling like a soap opera. And there is part of me that thinks, and I, I could be very wrong, I could be absolutely wrong, but Netflix are following this and the whole world is getting to see, you know, the way that these team principals are talking and, and different people, non-F1 fans are becoming to, are getting to know who these people are. And I guess the more noise you make, the more airtime you get. So there is part of me that thinks, is there a little bit of that going on behind the scenes as well? Actually, now it is a soap opera because Netflix are showing it to be a soap opera um, with Drive to Survive. So I just wonder if there is a tiny little bit of that, that that's going on behind the scenes. But again, I could be very wrong. People at F1 playing to the camera, surely not. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to say it's uh, it's part of the game, isn't it? They they know how to play the media and use it to their advantage. There's a reason that they're saying things the the way they're saying them, and um, you know, and and it goes and it goes both ways. It, when when you take it, not necessarily take it too far, but you misjudge it or you you do things to to serve a purpose that then has sort of negative consequences in another way. So you know, I, I think it's very important that you stress that whatever Red Bull's chiefs were saying after Silverstone, however out of um uh however out of proportion it, it might have seemed or however needlessly personal it seemed to get, they I, I I I could never I could never accuse them of um you know intentionally inciting the the aggression that followed in terms of how people piled onto Hamilton, particularly on with with, with the race racist stuff, but it did invite people to join in it did invite a pile on in 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 some way and and rebel would have known that they'd have known that they were opening the floodgates they would have known that it was legitimizing comments and it was so fierce and they said that they would do it this exact same way if any other driver had did it but bottas then went and skittled two of their cars at the first corner of the next race and didn't get anywhere near the level of vitriol that that was that was received initially. Now I know that no driver ended up in hospital for precautionary checks. No driver suffered a fifty plus g impact, so it is different. And you can't directly compare the two, but it's that same principle of well, Bottas has actually made, you know, it, it's Bottas who has done the actual amateurish thing here, not not necessarily Hamilton at Silverstone. Where's his pile on? And I'm not saying that that means everyone should get really angry at Valtteri now. I'm just like, <laughs> it's just, uh, there was a reason it was Hamilton who got the the abuse he did because he's the championship rival. And then on the, the flip side, when Red Bull lost its right to review ahead of the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend, that could have been it. Mercedes could have drawn the line under it. Mercedes could have been the bigger team. But they were so riled up by what had been implied by Red Bull that they decided to go on the offensive initially and put out that statement that accused Red Bull of the concerted effort to tarnish Hamilton's image. And that is a very strong thing to say to Red Bull. They could have chosen not to do that. They could have chosen the strategy of de-escalation immediately. It's all well and good in the days that followed Toto coming out and saying, oh, we need to step down. We we need to make sure that we've been to... You've just fueled it. You've just poured another couple of litres of petrol on this massive fire because you brought that out into the open so the the team they all have reasons for doing this they're all playing it up to a certain degree because when it suits them to play it up that they they will see benefits from it um and there will be absolutely an element of f1 as a whole benefiting hugely from what's been going on the last few weeks because it's no coincidence that f1's having its best season in years 
in terms of television audiences in 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 the UK as a whole, the the, the numbers are up. So this, this is paying off. It's just what at what point does it? You know, there is a tipping point for when it does go too far. And you know, Netflix jokes aside, that is not a um, completely faithful faithful um, docu series. It's part docu-series part soap opera it, it is because it, it, it plays stuff up it slightly uh, misrepresents the way certain things are um I, when the when the netflix show comes out next year there will be there, there's every chance there'll be a plot where you know at silverstone lewis hamilton has murdered max verstappen and max comes back from the dead in hungary <laughs> If you just take some of the stuff they've played up in advance, nothing that they've played up in advance has ever come close to as explosive as what happened in at Silverstone. So they're going to have a field day with that storyline, and it's just going to tip over into surrealism. Um, it, it's just it's just part of it. It just gets a little bit tiresome, and it does at some point it will become counterproductive if it's too negative, for too long, if it's too um, if it's too he said she said for too long. It'll, uh, it'll it'll become counterproductive, and it will also make the season end on a sour note. I don't want the best season in years, the best fight between the two best drivers of this generation, uh, to go down to the final round, and then the losing side not be able to accept it because of controversies. That it would just be such a bitter way for the for the year to end. So I'm hoping they don't need to kiss and make up, but they need to stop clawing each other's eyes out at every opportunity. And it's important to do that from a performance perspective as well because yeah if you'll say Red Bull they've lost a lot of points the past two races it's perfectly justified for them to be angry or furious or disappointed that they're not leading the two championships but you've got to kind of put that aside and just keep doing what you're doing you know focus on the job the sense of paranoia etc isn't going to help people uh, people deliver so they just need to get it all calmed down focus on the job in hand and uh, and let it play out. And also, you know, if you're at the top, if you're the, the team principal, you're, you know, the chief advisor or whatever you are, you're setting the tone for the whole team. So you're setting the tone for how your drivers speak, for how your team speaks, for how you everybody. So if you're coming out and, and saying certain things about certain drivers, as Scott sort of alluded to, you're setting the whole example for the entire team and you are the voice piece for the team. So Yes, though it looks fun and, and exciting and, and all this sort of stuff, you you sort of still want to come out the good guys. Um, so so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out for the rest of the season because I think I, I genuinely believe at the moment Mercedes are probably have the the upper hand on that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that's an important point, actually, the thing about setting the tone. So it'd be interesting to see how Christian Horner and Toto Wolff uh, approach things. I still suspect they won't be able to help themselves at some point, but <laughs> let's see how it all plays out. Well, Claire, we, we picked up earlier on on people who need to do better, and previously on the Race F1 podcast this season, we've regularly said about how good a job Lando Norris has been doing, but we haven't perhaps talked about him in depth as much as we have his teammate, given Daniel Ricciardo's struggle. So where would you rank Lando Norris in your drivers of the season? Or is he another one who's got to do a lot better? <laughs> um, no, do you know what? Lando for me, Lando Norris, let's use his full name, Mr. Norris, is um, is one of those 
drivers that he's one of the do you remember at school when there was always a kid that was consistent in exams and was always really good so never sort of got the praise because they were always just really good I sort of feel like Lando is that a bit I I think he's a a massively impressive driver but I'm so used to seeing him impressed this season and outperforming you know his teammates and making basically making Daniel Ricciardo look a bit average I'm sort of so used to it that that it I come to the end of the race and I go, oh, yeah, 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 he's in the top five. Yes, that's standard. You know, fine. He scored more points. Great. Um, Still consistently scoring those points until obviously he got binned off by by Bottas, which we've mentioned quite a lot in Hungary. However, the interesting thing I think about Lando Norris and and for somebody that kind of speaks to him before the race every, every um, every single time is he sort of goes through this weird cycle of Beginning of the race, or the beginning of the weekend, rather, we're not going to do very well. McLaren's going to be poor this weekend. We're not going to do, we're going to struggle. You know, qualifying is going to be really hard for us. We're going to have to fight our way from the back of the grid and, it, and it's going to be difficult. Then he gets to qualifying and he usually performs pretty well. You know, at one point he was fighting for Stappen for, for pole position. You know, he, he's he's consistent in his qualifying and he comes back out after qualifying and said, oh, but I think there could have been more there. There was definitely more in that. And we hear that a lot from drivers, don't get me wrong. And then we have the race. And again, usually consistently scores points apart from Hungary. And it's this interesting thing where we hear it a lot. We hear it a lot. But the only time that he sort of allowed himself to, to celebrate and enjoy himself was was Monaco, which obviously was an, an incredible podium for him. But then still at the end of the race, he was upset about the fact he um, he overtook Daniel Ricciardo in the race. He still had something that he had in his head that that he was unhappy about. And, and great, yeah, you know, we'll add him to the list of people that could do better because he, he seems to add himself to every single every single weekend. But it's, but it's a really interesting thing that we see Lando go through every single race weekend, which which makes me wonder what he hopes will be the end goal at McLaren this season, because he's already outperforming his teammate and outperforming that car. And he's worked incredibly hard with McLaren to make them a team that's back up the front of the grid, you know, and that's, he's doing it basically single-handedly. Daniel Ricciardo hasn't, from my memory, which is, I'm staring outside my window at the moment, so I might be completely wrong, but hasn't done better than eighth this season. So, so it's an interesting one, Lando, because you expect him to do well and you almost forget that he does very well every single time. But it's, it's, it's basically that with, with, with him, it, it's just become the new normal, hasn't it? It's that top five finishes is the new normal. And he's talked about this before. And actually, when uh, when Carlos Sainz was at McLaren and doing such a good job at the end of 2019 and then also last year as well, he went through the same thing. He says like, well... I remember with Carlos, it was getting annoyed at constantly being referred to as best of the rest because he was like, I actually think <laughs> as you know, as a package, me and McLaren are now so consistently here, we're more than best of the rest. We're in this sort of like middle ground between the top two or three teams and then the others. We're not part of that second group. And and Lando was saying earlier this year, I think it was um, it was at the first Austria race where he'd qualified third, but then slipped behind Bottas and Perez in the Grand Prix and ended up like a really long far a really long way behind Verstappen I think on, on the road and he said and that was the first time I think that kind of result which is normally in any circumstance a very good result for him and McLaren that was the first time that result wasn't that satisfying because he was kind of looking at it as well I, but, but I qualified third and I was running ahead of them early on 
but they've still beaten me and we're so far behind the best Mercedes or the best Red Bull that he was then, he's someone who does, when drivers sort of say, oh, you know, this bad thing that happened isn't a bad thing and they look for a silver lining. Lando's the opposite. He's so self-critical. He's he's looking for things to 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 be critical of and he's also part of that is um part of that is just a determination to always improve and part of that is also just he he is someone who is self-doubting he's someone who has had to um carry quite a bit of mental baggage and emotional baggage into formula one questioning his own worthiness of a place on the grid there there are times when he speaks where you would be forgiven for thinking there's a bit of imposter syndrome about Lando where he doesn't actually believe he deserves to be where he is but the longer this season's gone on for the more he's even managed to convince himself because he's been so good but it is just that thing where you've had those sort of fights for second or third where you've had those brilliant qualifying performances where he puts it on the front row um just then those fifth and sixth places they'd lose their shine um, you don't get it. He's he's he has quite li- literally got the taste for champagne. Uh, um, well, it's not champagne, is it? This year, it's uh, it's some kind of uh, sparkling so and so. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I just yeah, there there is still this bit where Lando is almost he's in that phase of he's transcending best best of the rest. So when he is just best of the rest, it's kind of not that impressive. And he even admits it. It doesn't quite feel as satisfying as it used to. But I mean, that's the mark of someone having a brilliant season, isn't it? When they don't quite fit into the to the group of the grid that they actually should be part of. I think it's interesting as well when you look at Norris's approach. I mean, Claire, you were talking about the fact that early in the weekend he's always saying, "Oh, expect it to be quite hard. We'll have to work hard." The thing I wanted to see from Norris this year was the improved consistency because the peaks have always been there, and he's absolutely delivered on that. But I think that kind of mindset. I kind of interpret as him just trying to hold himself in that thing where he's just focused on the process. You know, if you focus on putting one step in front of the other, then you'll get to your destination in the end. And it, it's quite easy in in sport to be distracted by the the kind of ultimate goal. And you think, oh, we could be on the podium this weekend. We could do this. We could do that. It's like, well, if it's possible and you do the best you can, FP1, FP2, all the way through, then then you'll get there. So I, I wonder if that's part of it as well, that it's, it's helped him to not get ahead of himself uh, and just just focus on on what he's doing and also what Scott you were saying about the feeling whether he's good enough if he's just focusing on what's right in front of him right do this properly do this properly do this properly you're not worried about whether you can get the result in the end because it will just come I, I don't know it's always hard to know but all we know is that in elite sport the psychological side is enormously enormously uh important there's a huge amount of, of scholarship about that and I think what's also interesting is he's even though he's a, a young driver coming through, he's a young driver that's that's constantly been talking to other young people as he's been doing it. You know, he's a gamer. He often is on his Twitch um, stream talking to to other people that are his age, other you know younger kids as well, getting involved with with various different things. And I think I think it's a very for me, I find it a very interesting take on on sort of where society is at the moment as well to go a bit you know deeper in it I guess but but I I think because there is so much more talk about mental health there's so much more talk about if things are too much for example I heard an interesting quote from from George Russell who similar age to Lando Norris obviously and he said something like in it was along the lines of in sport if if you if you make a mistake and, and you show it it's a weakness 
And I thought that's a really interesting way for a 23-year-old to be talking, that that to show any sort of weakness, to show your emotions is to show weakness. And 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 I think with Lando is that the reason he talks so well and, and um, so many youngsters identify very well with him is because he is very... He's very true to himself from how I feel. Um, I saw him in the Toka package when he used to race alongside the British touring cars. And obviously he was very young and very short at that point. But he, because um, he was very young, but uh, he always felt like he, he, he hasn't changed. If you see him being spoken to when he was in the Toka package and you see him to how he speaks now, obviously he's got more confident and he's an F1 driver. But, but I think he stayed incredibly true to who he is and... I find that really interesting, that mental health side of things that actually people can relate to him and people can go, oh, well, I feel that way too. Or, or I've, I've felt, you know, that I've not been good enough or, or whatever it is. But, it, you know, sometimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. So he does have to be careful. He's, a, he's someone who's a great advert for loving what you do. Um, when he was in karting, he was, uh, uh, he was with uh, the Ricky Flynn team. When he was in car racing, he would gravitate to Carlin wherever wherever he could. Now he's at McLaren, and he's open to the idea of being a McLaren lifer because a big part of the way he wants to go racing is to enjoy it, to be working with people he considers friends, people you know that he enjoys spending time with, and I think that feeds into his mentality as someone who who. Uh, I'm not going to. I, I I almost said he's almost sort of like weaker on the uh, emotional side, but it's not a weakness, and it shouldn't be seen as a weakness. It's that someone for whom the emotional side is just in, inherently it's so on his sleeve and so obviously tied to the performance side. We know that subconsciously, this stuff always impacts your quality as a driver. The happier you are better you are likely to perform that always exists on a subconscious level with with lando it's just it's just much more front and center he if he enjoys what he does he does a better job uh if he's in if he's doing a better job he's more confident in himself if he's more confident in himself he's enjoying himself more and as you said claire it just becomes this sort of self-fulfilling thing conversely when things go badly he starts to doubt himself and some of this he might be he might risk getting trapped in that it's sort of a pro con situation with being wired that way uh, as a person but i i think the way lando goes about his his racing the way he handles himself off track the way he's becoming more confident in who he is as a person and as a driver i think is an incredible role model to have for the sort of younger generation of fan that he's bringing into f1 but he's also so serious and dedicated to his craft that even someone who's been around for 50 or 60 years has to look at him and say, you're just an incredibly serious and talented individual. And I respect you for that. And Lando cares about hitting those two different types of people. Um, it's something that he wants to do. He wants to be taken seriously, but he doesn't want to be taken too seriously. It's a very difficult balance to strike, but much like he's doing a great job on track, I actually think he's now finding a really nice balance off it as well. And I think that is important because we talk about the the mental side for, for people who are competing in, in sport being very important and there's no sort of one size fits all there will be some people as as claire said that who don't feel they can admit a mistake or a weakness and it would be a problem for them to do so but there's others for whom it would be a problem to do that so it's about you know everybody's a little bit different reacts in different ways so it's about finding the way that works for you it seems to work very very well for lando norris but what works for lando norris might not necessarily work for a lewis hamilton or a sebastian vettel or whoever 
I think also it's the culture of Formula One. You know, it's always been boys and their toys, which is where we're coming away from now, which is what, where society should be going. Um, and I think along along with that changes that we're having, where obviously, you know, Formula One has never been segregated and women are allowed in the sport and we're seeing more women coming through. The sport is changing. Um, the sport's changing, the championship's changing. And I think along with that, we're going to see characters that are changing as well. And I think Lando Norris is one of those ones where he is the future of what we're going to see coming through, which is people being allowed to talk about their emotions, being ta- allowed to talk about their struggles and and the pressures that they're on as a, a young driver coming through. And I think when you look at the history of some drivers that have not had that same amount of, you know, support or maybe being looked after, I think it's a really positive thing that we're going to see, hopefully, the duty of care for, for these drivers is, is going to be better for people like Lando Norris, who who speak out about when things are tricky. And I think that'd be really important to see moving forward. And we're probably seeing that in a lot of elite sports, aren't we? Uh, in all sorts of uh, major sports, these sorts of conversations are going on, that sort of change is happening, which is positive. Because yeah, as I said, ultimately, it's down you want to see people performing at their best and people perform at their best when they're in the right place mentally as well as physically, et cetera. It's, uh, it's all, all part of the same uh, complex equation. But that's uh, it's a great topic. It's probably a topic for, uh, for a whole podcast uh, at, at a later date, but hopefully we've touched on it a little bit there. Uh, well, thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and special guest Claire Cottingham. Enjoy the Paralympics, Claire. You'll, you'll be out there uh, working fairly shortly. Uh, head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for all the latest in the build-up to F1 getting going again at Spa. If podcasts are your thing, check out our sister titles, including the Race IndyCar podcast and the Race MotoGP podcast. And if video's your thing, take a look at our YouTube channel. Stay with us on the Race F1 podcast for everything you need to know from the Belgian Grand Prix. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.